Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Um, wonderful to look around the table and see all of the Maine connections here. And I uh, uh, lived in Maine for a while, and I'm sort of back living in Maine, and there, there, there are several people around here at the table who I know from various parts of my Maine life. So uh, on the other hand, it's very nice to be in, um, uh, uh, in the Phoenix weather uh, at this point in time. So I want to... Um, talk to you um, uh, today, I, I have a, my, the title is, um, of my presentation is, Can Interfaith Relations Save the Planet and Bring the Messiah? So, you know, just a, 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 you know, a simple question. Um, early in my rabbinic career, I was invited to participate in a public debate on the question of whether religion was a positive or a negative force in the world. Uh, the only thing that sticks in my mind um, uh, is that I thought then, as I think now, that it's the wrong question. Uh, actually, the other thing that sticks in my mind is that the invitation came to the senior rabbi under whom I was working, and he wanted to have nothing to do with it, so he gave it to me. So it's not hard to point to all of the ways that religion is connected to uh, violence and war. Uh, recently, we've been focused um, on, on uh, violent uh, extremism uh, among some in the Muslim community, but we should not forget that there are violent Jewish extremists in Israel, Christian extremists in the United States, Africa, and elsewhere, uh, Hindu extremists in India, Buddhist, yes, Buddhist extremists um, in, in Sri Lanka, uh, in Thailand, in Myanmar, there's Om Shinrikyo in Japan, just to name a few examples. We can point to religion as a factor in the oppression of women and of LGBTQ people. Then there's the corruption within religious institutions and the moral failure of some of our religious leaders. If we take a look at history, religion seems to be inseparable from centuries of violence, conflict, and oppression. It can add up to a disheartening image of religion. On the other hand, there are ways that religion has and continues to be, I would say many ways that religion has and continues to be a positive force. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and you know, when I say that, of course, I don't mean to exclude other traditions, but um, all prioritize caring for others, whether it's called charity, tzedakah, or zakat, uh, peace is viewed as an ultimate goal and a supreme value, uh, even one of the names of God. Religious organizations shelter refugees, fight disease and poverty, and help people become self-sufficient. Individuals such as Mother Teresa, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Abraham Joshua Heschel were all inspired by religion. And whether it's through local congregations or global organizations such as American Jewish World Service, in the name of religion, people all over the world devote countless hours and resources to serving others and working to make our world a better place. And religion also provides people with community, with a sense of belonging and a way to respond to the vicissitudes of life. All of this, I would say, is positive. Additionally, the facile statement that religion is responsible for most wars doesn't hold up under scrutiny. In 2015, the Institute for Economics and Peace published a study called Five Key Questions Answered on the Link Between Religion and Peace. It concluded that, and you'll, you'll hear from some of the language usage that this is a British organization, 
Uh, religion is not the main cause of conflicts today. Whilst religion has evidently uh, been a cause of many conflicts throughout history, it is by no means the only reason for conflict. Surveying the state of 35 armed conflicts from 2013, religious elements did not play a role in 14, or 40%. It is notable that religion did not stand as a single cause in any conflict. However, 14% did have religion and the establishment of an Islamic state as driving causes. Religion was only one of three or more factors for 67% of the conflicts where religion featured as a factor to the conflict. In other words, religion is a factor of many conflicts, but not all, and blaming religion for all the world's ills simply does not fit the facts. Now, whether religion is a positive or a negative force, uh, 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 I think that's the wrong question, and it has less to do with statistical analysis or our ability to point to this or that piece of evidence. Rather, it's that religion is neither a positive nor a negative. However one defines religion, and I suggest that, that, that the definition is, is elusive, religion is not the problem. People are the problem and the solution. As uh, Rabbi Daniel Hartman has written, all monotheistic faiths rooted in millennia-old traditions are replete with laws and beliefs which fail the moral standards of Western liberal democratic traditions or what we now like to call our universal moral truths. In this sense, Islam is no more challenged than Christianity or Judaism. As Shakespeare has taught us, the devil quotes scripture. He has no need to misquote it. The challenge of every religious tradition is to engage in an ongoing process of criticism, evaluation, and reinterpretation to give new meaning to ancient laws and authority to some chapters over others. Rabbi Hartman continues, our traditions are neither inherently moral nor immoral, inherently great or depraved. There are only great and moral interpreters and interpretations. Religious life and devotion entail engaging in a constant struggle with our religion tradi religious traditions to ensure that the forces of good prevail over those of evil. Now, this is why the discourse around uh, whether Islam is a religion of peace is unhelpful. It reduces complex human and social phenomena to a binary good versus evil formula, and by so doing, plays into the hands of the fear mongers among us, including some in the Jewish community, who want to portray Islam as inherently violent and incompatible with Western democracy. Now, many Muslims, embarrassed by heinous acts of other Muslims, offended by what they consider mischaracterizations of their religion and understandably threatened by the hateful rhetoric and violence directed at them, want to defend Islam by proclaiming its peaceful nature and denying that the acts of violence perpetrated have anything to do with Islam. I think all this misses the point. Neither Islam nor any religion exists independent of those who practice and teach it. There is no one such thing as Islam or Judaism or Christianity or Hinduism and so forth. There are only the myriad ways each of these is understood and taught by those who claim it. It's the willingness, as Rabbi Hartman said, to struggle with our traditions that is key. Now, it's understandable that Muslims want to put as much space between themselves and the violent extremists who perpetrate you know, violent acts. Um, we all do that with our traditions. We all do that with our families. We all do that with our communities. They're not us, right? Um, politicians get into the act as well. Both George Bush and Barack Obama have called uh, Islam a religion in, of peace, and both have avoided using the phrase Islamic or Muslim extremists. Our current president seems to have taken a different approach to dealing with Islam and Muslims. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, but Rabbi Hartman addresses this directly. Of course, there are Muslim terrorists just as there are Jewish and Christian ones. The danger of political correctness is that denying the reality of Islamic terror does not protect Islam, but rather allows the terror in its midst to grow. 
If this terror is to be uprooted, it will only happen when we all acknowledge its existence and Muslims worldwide engage in an internal war over the identity of their tradition. The same goes for Jews and Judaism. Our text and our tradition can be quoted in support of both peacemaking and violence. One does not have to spend a lot of time reading Israeli or diaspora Jewish media to find examples across the spectrum. We all need to name and call out those individuals who use and abuse our texts and our traditions to perpetuate evil. For me, then, the question is not whether religion is a positive or negative force in the world, but rather what can be done to ensure that it is a positive force. There's no one simple, single answer to this question, but one piece of the answer, I believe, I'm not going to surprise you, is interreligious dialogue. Now, a couple of years ago, we marked the 50th anniversary of the Vatican's Nostra Aetate. Now, this remarkable document is uh, best known in the Jewish community for its repudiation of the charge that all Jews, both in the time of Jesus and after, were responsible for his death. Nostra Aetate also decried anti-Semitism and violence against Jews. It spoke about a shared spiritual patrimony that Jews and Christians have in common. It called for fraternal dialogue and joint biblical and theological scholarship. And it has rightly been described as a sea change in Jewish-Christian relations or a 180-degree turnabout in the church's relations to the Jews. Nostra Aetate also addressed Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism explicitly, and by extension, all other religious traditions. It states that the church rejects nothing that is true and holy in other traditions, and it offers clear guidance to Catholics on how to approach relations with practitioners of other religions. In one paragraph, it states, and with apologies for the gender specificity of the text, we cannot truly call on God the Father of all if we refuse to treat in a brotherly way any man created as he is in the image of God. Man's relation to God the Father and his relation to men his brothers are so linked together that the scripture says, he who does not love does not know God. No foundation therefore remains, I'm continuing with, with, uh, uh, with this text, for any theory or practice that leads to discrimination between man or man and man or people and people so far as their human dignity and rights flowing from it are concerned. The church reproves as far into the mind of Christ any discrimination against men or harassment of them because of their race, color, condition of life or religion. On the contrary, Following in the footsteps of the holy apostles Peter and Paul, this sacred synod ardently implores the Christian faithful to maintain good fellowship among the nations and, if possible, to live for their part in peace with all men so they may be truly sons of the Father who is in heaven. You'll forgive me, I have a number of lengthy quotes in here, but I think they're important. Given its role in history, this is truly a remarkable reorientation for the Catholic Church. And indeed, Nostra Aetate has come to symbolize in many ways modern interreligious relations, and the Catholic Church has become a leader in both the theory and the practice of interfaith dialogue. That's why I'm going to refer to the Church again in a few moments. Now, Nostra Aetate came out at the end of October of uh, 1965, and on November 10th, 1965, just two weeks later, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel delivered a famous talk entitled, No Religion is an Island. Heschel, one of the greatest Jewish theologians of the 20th century, was consulted by the Vatican during the writing of Nostra Aetate. In March of that same year, Heschel joined Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I know exactly where we are in our calendar, in the march from Selma to Atlanta, about which he later wrote, when I marched in Selma, my feet were praying. Heschel's essay reflected not only in his, on his commitment to the civil rights movement and his experiences in Rome during the council, but also the realities of the Second World War, both the Shoah and the use of atomic weapons at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. You can hear all of this in the following, again, with apologies, lengthy citation, where he addresses 
only Christianity and Judaism, but I'm sure if he were delivering the talk today, he would be more expansive and include Islam and other traditions as well. So as you listen to this, just think about it as, as being more inclusive. <clears throat> Our era marks the end of complacency, the end of evasion, the end of self-reliance. Jews and Christians share the perils and the fears. We stand on the brink of the abyss together. Interdependence of political and economic conditions all over the world is a basic fact of our situation. Disorder in a small, obscure country in any part of the world invokes, evokes anxiety in people all over the world. Parochialism has become untenable. There was a time when you could not, and this, this, I love this, there was a time when you could not pry out of a Boston man that the Boston State House is not the hub of the solar system, or that one's own denomination has not the monopoly of the Holy Spirit. Today we know that even the solar system is not the hub of the universe. He continues, the, religion of, the religions of the world are no more self-sufficient, no more independent, no more isolated than individuals or nations. Energies, experiences, and ideas that come to life outside the boundaries of a particular religion or all religions continue to challenge and to affect every religion. Horizons are wider, dangers are greater. No religion is an island. He continues, we are all involved with one another. Spiritual betrayal on the part of one of us affects the faith of all of us. Views adopted in one community have an impact on other communities. Today, religious isolationism is a myth. For all the profound differences in perspective and substance, Judaism is sooner or later affected by the intellectual, moral, and spiritual events within the, Christ within the Christian society and vice versa. We fail to realize that while different exponents of faith in the world of religion continue to be wary of the ecumenical movement, the interreligious movement, there is another ecumenical movement worldwide in extent and influence, nihilism. We must choose between interfaith and internihilism. Cynicism is not parochial. Should religions insist upon the illusion of complete isolation? Should we refuse to be on speaking terms with one another and hope for each other's failure? Or should we pray for each other's health and help one another in preserving one's respective legacy, in preserving a common legacy. Thus far, Heschel. Many people have revered, referred to Heschel as a modern prophet, and not because he could foresee the future, that's not what prophets do, but because he clearly saw the moral imperatives of his day, which have not changed in 50 years. If anything, they have become more important. Indeed, it, every time I read this, without you know, certain clues, it could have been written yesterday. Um, for Heschel, interreligious dialogue is a religious imperative, both for the good of humanity as a whole and for the survival of each religious community in its uniqueness. But what is interreligious dialogue? Now, some people have an image of interfaith dialogue as people sitting around a table talking in platitudes about how we all worship the same God, share the same values, and love one another. Then everybody eats, goes home, and nothing happens. One colleague of mine referred to this as tea and sympathy. Uh, others make snide references to kumbaya. And it's certainly possible for that kind of dialogue to be shallow, but it doesn't have to be. For me, interreligious dialogue is much more than tea and sympathy. Indeed, dialogue is not limited to formal discussions about religion. Uh, a useful way to think about dialogue actually comes from another document of the Catholic Church, a 1991 uh, document with the, the cumbersome title. Someone needs to talk to the Vatican about coming up with snappier titles for their, their but this is called Dialogue and Proclamation, Reflections and Orientations on Interreligious Dialogue and the Proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Despite my sort of snarkiness there, it's, it's a very important document, don't, don't mistake me. Dialogue and Proclamation includes what I think is a very instructive taxonomy of interreligious dialogue that describes four different ways or models or modes in which dialogue occurs. There's the dialogue of life, of theological exchange, of religious experience, and of action. 
The dialogue of life is, quote, where people strive to live an openly, open and neighborly spirit, sharing their joys and sorrows, their human problems and preoccupations. Every encounter we have with people from another religious tradition in which our religious identities are known to one another is, in a very real sense, interreligious dialogue. At work, at school, at the gym, with our neighbors, increasingly within our own families, we interact with people from other traditions, intimately or casually. It might be our best friend. It might be the Lyft driver who took me from the airport. Living harmoniously in a multi-religious society, and America is the, is the uh, most religiously diverse country on the planet, depends upon the recognition and the affirmation of that diversity. The dialogue of life is not about the content of communication, but about relationship and community. It's about transforming the other from a dis distant abstract to a real living person, a face, a name, from them, whoever they are, to uh, my next door neighbor, to all of the people that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. The second type of dialogue is theological exchange, uh, which the church describes as where specialists seek to deepen their understanding of respective religious heritage and to appreciate each other's spiritual values. Now, I spend a lot of time in that world. There are official meetings between local and national, international religious bodies, symposia, conferences, academic journals, books. In response to the increasing diversity I mentioned above, we now find uh, that uh, representatives of the Muslim community are both reaching out and being sought as dialogue partners. We've come a long way since uh, um, Will Herberg's Protestant Catholic Jew, right? Um, I recently uh, I attended a conference at the Vatican celebrating the 50th anniversary of Nostra Aetate with Jews, a variety of non-Catholic Christians, Muslims, both Sunni and Shia, Buddhists, Hindus, Sikhs, Confucians, Jains, Baha'is, and probably a few others that I've forgotten. In this regard, we Jews need to remember that most of the interreligious dialogue in the world doesn't involve us at all. Now, all these organizations and meetings and all that talking and endless writing are not just tea and sympathy or kumbaya, but I think are extraordinarily significant. Considered in the light of the history of religious conflict and the way that religions often interacted um, uh, with and spoke about each other in the past, this kind of dialogue is still a radical departure. In the past, debate or dispute was the primary mode. Why I am right and you are wrong and going to hell and don't deserve to live. Dialogue, on the other hand, is not a competitive sport with winners or losers. Rather, it's about understanding others as they understand themselves. And sometimes we can learn about ourselves and our own traditions along the way. Ideally, interreligious dialogue not only creates bonds between practitioners of different religions, but it strengthens our own identity and deepens our own faith as well. Now, this also occurs in the third type of dialogue, the dialogue of religious experience. Again, quoting, where persons rooted in their own religious traditions share their spiritual riches, for instance, with regard to prayer and contemplation, uh, faith and ways of searching for God or the absolute, end quote. Now, this is different from theological dialogue in that the, in that the former is primarily an intellectual exercise. This, as the name suggests, is experiential. I imagine that many of you have shared, those of you who are Jewish, who have shared Jewish holidays and traditions with, with Gentile friends and family, uh, quite possibly with someone who's never experienced them before. Experience is very different than reading or hearing someone give a lecture or, or, or about something. Whether it's Shabbat dinner or Passover seders or a bar mitzvah or lighting the Hanukkah candles. In the theological dialogue, I might go on and on and on and on about this, <laughs> about the significance of singing next year in Jerusalem at the end of the Passover seder, but it's understood differently 
late at night after working through the entire Passover Haggadah, or at least as much as happens in any individual home, and uh, including a big meal with lots of wine. Just for the experience, is di as, in, as in most things, the experience is different than reading about it, right? When we are guests at another's religious observance, there are, of course, certain limitations. If we maintain our own identity, then by definition, we're always a little bit on the periphery, participant observers at best, experience something, experiencing something, but not the totality of what it means to those to whom it truly belongs. And there can be aspects of another's religious life in which it would be inappropriate for others to participate out of respect for one's own or for the other one's tradition. Even with these limitations, though, the dialogue of religious experience can be profound. We can still appreciate and be moved by the beauty and sanctity of our neighbor's faith and our neighbor's traditions and our neighbor's rituals. This is what Christer Stendhal, the late Harvard Divinity School professor and Lutheran bishop referred to, I love this phrase, as holy envy. <laughs> now the fourth type of dialogue is the dialogue of action, in which religious communities collaborate for the development and the liberation of people. Uh, local synagogues, churches, mosques, other organizations across the country join together to, in the words of the prophet, feed the hungry and clothe the naked, and to tackle societal problems such as immigration reform or the environment. Um, I, uh, um, I come out of the reform movement, and I spent uh, some time working for the Reform Actions Religious Action Center, uh, in Washington, D.C., which has long-standing coalitions with a variety of religious organizations uh, in order to implement uh, the movement's legislative agenda in Washington, D.C. Now that I'm at the ADL, we do exactly the same thing. Uh, one example of this is a campaign that we're involved in right now called 50 States Against Hate. Um, this has to do with hate crimes legislation. Uh, ADL um, was involved, uh, very intimately involved, in drafting the uh, 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 federal hate crimes legislation, the Matthew Shepard James Beard uh, bill. Um, and there are, I, I forget whether it's either 45 or 46 states in the country that have their own state uh, hate crimes legislation. That means that there are four or five states that have no hate crimes legislation. And of those that do, uh, from the position of ADL, uh, many of them are inadequate in that they don't cover the entire uh, range of, of uh, classes or types of people that um, we feel need to be protected by such laws. So that's one problem. One, one part of this campaign is to get hate crimes legislation in the states that don't have it and in those that do have it um, but they, where they need strengthening or enhancement to have that happen as well. Um, uh, a second piece of this has to do with reporting. There is no uniform requirement for reporting hate crimes around the country. And you cannot really address a problem if you can't define it and measure it and so forth. So my understanding is that the city of Phoenix reports hate crimes every year, but some of the outlying, you know, uh, just, you know, you step across the border and all of a sudden there's no reporting. So you could look at a chart and say, wow, there are all these hate crimes in Phoenix, but there are none in, you know, whatever the next, the next community is. That's a problem. So uh, here, in, uh, here in Arizona, uh, with, uh, with, uh, under the direction of, of my colleague, uh, uh, Carlos, who's sitting at the other end of the table there, who's our Arizona Regional Director. Um, uh, we are working in coalition to uh, try to get um, uh, the Arizona uh, hate crime law strengthened the way we, we believe it ought to be strengthened, and also to work on reporting as well. Now, if you look on ADL's website and find the 50 States Against Hate webpage, you take a look at our partners, and you'll see uh, that we are working with uh, a number of Christian denominations, a number of Muslim organizations, with the Hindu American Foundation, with the Sikh organization, and this is exactly the kind of dialogue of action that we're talking about. 
Um, and uh, by the way, and if, if, if this excites you, please talk to uh, Carlos when we're, when we're done. We can use all of the help that we can get. Now sometimes, in all honesty, we'll work with the same, organi with the same organization on one issue and work against them on another. Um, but that's okay if it's done in the spirit of respect. Indeed, I think that's part of uh, the beauty of this kind of work. Um, uh, we also find that this dialogue of action is, is particularly attractive to uh, younger people. This is the philosophy behind the Interfaith Youth Corps founded by Ibu Patel and based in Chicago. Uh, Patel's, and here I'm quoting again, core belief is that religion is a bridge of cooperation rather than a barrier of uh, division. The Interfaith Youth Corps focuses on college students, bringing them together for collaborative action, and developing leaders who value interfaith uh, relations. Um, joining together for social action is a particularly powerful form of interreligious dialogue. In addition to the specific problem being addressed, the very act of cooperating as religious communities is a hugely important statement in and of itself. And while we're talking about youth, if you think, you know, this sort of dialogue of action with you know, high school students, teenagers, is extraordinarily powerful. Many of them are not really at a point where they can sit around the table and talk about what their faith means for them and so forth, but they can create those bonds if they're doing a Habitat for Humanity project or building a playground, you know, whatever the project is. So uh, I'm a big fan, as you are probably gathering, of this dialogue of action. So these four types of interreligious dialogue, dialogue of life, theological reflection, religious expression, and action include a broad range of activities, uh, formal and informal, from scholarly conferences to chance encounters. From this perspective, the number of people involved in dialogue is much larger than the popular misconception of interreligious uh, dialogue might suggest. It's not just you know, theologians in a musty room discussing arcane points of biblical interpretation and issuing statements that you know, no one ever reads. It's literally millions of people who in their day-to-day -day lives demonstrate that religion need not be a cause of conflict, but can be a powerful force for change. Heschel referred to an ecumenical movement of interfaith as the counter to internihilism. I believe that this movement exists and that it's growing and that it is desperately needed. We Jews have been using the term tikkun olam a lot in the last few uh, decades uh, to repair the world. Uh, I, I won't go off on whether that's uh, actually what the phrase means in its classical, uh, uh, you know, classical usage. Uh, we can do that another time. But um, uh, it, it's become a, a very important catchword uh, in the Jewish community. But we as Jews uh, should not forget that, that we're about 2% of the population in the United States. We're one quarter of 1% of the world's population. Uh, we're sort of a statistical rounding error compared to some of the larger traditions. And if we want to repair the world, we can't do it alone. Tikkun Olam requires that we form partnerships and coalitions from the local to the international in order to make our voices heard and our actions felt. Helping to form these coalitions um, is an important kind of the work that, that both Carlos and I do for ADL. Now, finally, in the words of the prophet Zechariah, um, we need to be prisoners of hope. It's neither too late nor impossible. The time is now, the goal is achievable. If, as Heschel said, we stand on the brink of the abyss together, whether that abyss is the violence of war, or religious extremism, or the poisoning of our planet, then it's only together that we will be able to pull back from that abyss. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi. We'll have the opportunity to uh, ask some questions, and then we also want to be sure to hear from Carlos about the, work, the local work in Yale, Arizona. So, whoever wants to jump in, you can take the questions yourself out. Sure. 
Who wants to? You want to start? I can see I it. Have a question, <laughs> but yes. I, I do want to share that um, the religious, the theological exchange works. A few years ago, I um, I used to be a member here and and at another synagogue. I still am, and um, I began teaching at the church. I began teaching Jewish stuff at the church. So what I do is um, many of the folks in the church have are not familiar with the Hebrew scriptures that make up part of their mass in, in the pre-Eucharist portion. So uh, when they hear those readings, they don't necessarily connect at all. And the church has been, uh, it's St. Patrick's here uh, in Scottsdale, has been extremely welcoming. I wrote a book on the Torah and a book on Shalom, and they publicized it, they let me teach it, and for many of the parishioners, uh, and I make the Jesus connection for them, so they see where, when, when Jesus is talking about peace I leave you, peace I give you, it's Shalom, let me tell you what that is, and here, here, here it is in, in the Hebrew Bible, and, and we start to talk about it, and it has made a, a difference to them. I've heard some beautiful things. My, I've always wanted to build those interfaith bridges, and even in this small little way, I start to, to see people. They ask me uh, questions. They want to go on field trips to synagogues. We do other stuff together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's made a huge difference. So, That's fabulous. So I, 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 I have a passion for, for your topic. Oh, well, good for you. Good. Rabbi. I want to begin to challenge one of my assumptions. One of my assumptions has been that those who are most, most deeply rooted in kind of an epistemological, fundamentalist sense in, in their tradition are unlikely to engage in this work. And most likely are those who are, are least rooted kind of in, um, in their religious fervor. Um, and that the most strategic group to engage are those who are rooted in some cultural religious sense in their faith, but also have a, an epistemic humility and a, a willingness to see beyond their own boundaries. And I, and I wonder if, if that's true strategically, it's those we, that who can kind of engage those loosely affiliated and deeply, even at fundamental, fundamentalistically uh, rooted, um, if that's sort of the strategic group we want to engage in interfaith dialogue, or actually if those who are very loosely and very, you know, kind of, culturally affiliated with their populations, who can't really reach within, uh, but have the deepest appreciation for the kind of interfaith work um, is, is, is still an effective population. Does that make sense? So, so I hope you can push back on that assumption. That's <laughs> um, it. It's a, it's a rich question, so just give me a, a second to formulate a, a coherent answer. Um, if I understood you correctly, um, and, and help me here, okay, um, it, it seemed like you were saying that um, if there's sort of a spectrum from uh, sort of a, if on one end is the, 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 the most fundamental or fundamentalist and perhaps isolationist uh, part of a religious tradition, and on the other spectrum would be um, uh, those who are progressive, but perhaps not as deeply rooted in that tradition. Am I following you so far? That some of the, those are the folks who might be in the in the vanguard of this kind of work. Yeah. <laughs> Simply that, they, that their identity within their religious group is not fundamental to who they are. Not that mm -hmm. they're more progressive, more than yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I might argue with, with that religious idea, whether it's how fundamental it is to how they view themselves. Um, uh, but I do think that, you know, if we look at, if we look at the history of interreligious dialogue, um, post-World War II, say, in the United States, um, uh, in the Jewish community, it was really the, um, uh, uh, you know, it was the Reform Jews and some of the conservative Jews who were in the vanguard of that, who were most open to that. Um, 
Uh, those in the ortho there were some in the Orthodox Jewish community, Rabbi Soloveitchik, uh, for example, his 19, I think it was also 1965 article uh, called Confrontation, for example, which, which uh, um, raised a lot of questions about, about interreligious dialogue and had great concerns about um, uh, uh, people taking, taking part in that. Um, uh, but I think you know, what has happened, again, in the 50-odd years since then, is a good bit more openness to that kind of uh, activity. So I'm involved with uh, something called the International Jewish Committee on Interreligious Consultations, or IJKIC, um, <laughs> uh, which is a consortium of Jewish organizations, including Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox uh, Rabbinical and Congregational Movements, ADL, American Jewish Committee, World Jewish Congress, B'nai B'rith, um, and we work together um, uh, to form a, sort of an international group that can be in relationship with other international religious organizations. So we're in dialogue with the Vatican on a regular basis, with, uh, uh, with uh, the Orthodox churches. I just came back from a meeting with, um, um, uh, with representatives of the Orthodox Church in, um, uh, we were meeting in Jerusalem, but these were representatives from Orthodox churches from around the world. And uh, certainly those Orthodox Christians are very deeply uh, rooted um, uh, in, in their tradition. And, and um, I'm not sure I would use the word fundamentalist, but certainly fundamentally, if, that, if that's an important distinction. And in our group as well. So, um, uh, uh, you know, I think the... Um, uh, I, I understand why some of those who are more traditionally oriented uh, have been wary of uh, interreligious dialogue, and I certainly understand why uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, some in the Jewish community were particularly leery about trying to engage the, the Christian world. Um, but I really think that... Um, the willingness to be open to others um, is, is, you know, there's no monopoly on that on the religious spectrum. Um, and uh, that some of the things that I think Heschel was talking about here, about interrelatedness and so forth, um, uh, is, is more and more understood um, uh, in sort of the more traditional, uh, many, not, not everywhere, of course, but in uh, many parts of the, the traditional world. And, and I find that um, having, you know, again, coming from the more uh, liberal end of the religious spectrum, I find having Jewish colleagues around the table with me who represent a more pr uh, traditional perspective, again, is quite enriching. Uh, it's enriching for me because I learn a lot for, uh, from it. It's enriching for others because um, while I can, uh, you know, while I think I can talk reasonably coherently about the broad spectrum of, of, of the Jewish tradition, it's that much more powerful when it comes from someone who's living that, right? Uh, indeed, one, one of the uh, sort of cardinal rules of interreligious uh, uh, dialogue and interreligious learning is that the best way to learn from, about a tradition is from someone who practices that, that tradition. Um, uh, so, um, did that, have I responded at all to your question? Okay. Who else wants to jump in here? Don't be shy. <laughs> okay. Great. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you, Rabbi, for joining us today, and thank you, Rabbi, for inviting us to partner. I hope that this is the beginning of more opportunities to do that. Um, ADL, Regional Director, um, and I've been on the job for a year and a half, and I still feel, feel very much like a newbie, um, because there's so much to learn and so much going on. But really, our role here in Arizona, and, and when we say Arizona, we mean the whole state. We're not just a regional office for Phoenix, but it's all ours, from Page to, to Yuma, to Duncan, to, uh, to uh, yeah, Page, Douglas, Duncan, to Yuma. <laughs> um, and um, our work is to really protect the Jewish people from defamation, 
true to our mission, but we also work to protect vulnerable and marginalized communities um, because we know it cannot only be for ourselves. Uh, we know that we have a responsibility in all that we do to support all who are being uh, attacked. Um, and these are the days where we see it play out um, on social media, on um, TV, and so forth. And, um, and you will always know that ADL will take us a position and will stand even if we're alone doing it. But our role here is to make sure that you all have a place to call, that you all have advocates to work on your behalf, whether it's a hate incident, a possible hate crime, or other um, areas of concern. One of those will be um, in calling the legislature um, to um, support and vote for a standalone provision for a hate crime. Arizona is an enhancement state, um, meaning that um, a judge can only take into consideration if it's a hate crime um, at the end of all at the end of all the proceedings to enhance the sentence, but it's not something that will be included as part of um, the testimony or by by the prosecution. Not because they don't want to, but because that's what the law says in Arizona. We would like to change that and to make it a more inclusive um, hate crimes law in Arizona. Um, so we'll be calling on you all to help us with that, whether it's making phone calls or even going to the state capitol and, and visibly showing your support for it. Um, two areas, main areas for ADL in Arizona is the work that we do in education. Um, our No Place for Hate initiative, we're working with 43 schools, uh, touching 50,000 students to create school campuses that are inclusive and respectful, where there's no bias bullying or bigotry, and we're fortunate that Miriam, who's here with us today, is the national chair for the education committee for ADL, as well as the regional chair um, on education. So if you have any questions <laughs> about those initiatives, please ask Miriam. She knows everything about what there is to know uh, about ADL and education. Um, on the other side, we work closely with law enforcement. Uh, we have a special relationship with law enforcement. Um, and we do training with law enforcement on hate crimes. And now in February, we'll be rolling out new training on implicit bias. Um, and so what's important is that when there is a hate crime or hate incident, because of that relationship, we can work with them and advocate on behalf of the victim and on behalf of the entire Jewish community or other communities because we're getting calls not only about anti-Semitism, but about um, uh, bigotry against Muslims, bigotry against immigrants. And um, so we hope that when you call us, it's under, under any circumstance, we are there to support you. I did bring for everybody. Um, these are the days where knowing what symbols mean really matters. And so this is a quick um, and a small actual um, sampling of hate symbols. You can go online to um, ADL.org, and we actually have a whole library of those symbols that we consider to be hate symbols. And so I'll pass these out for everybody. Um, so you can take one home. If you would like more, you can give me a call, um, reach out to me, and I will get you more. Um, but just know, ADL, I've got your back. So uh, I would just uh, love it, but I know you met uh, Pope uh, Francis uh, <laughs> Last year, and you know, one of the uh, you know bright lights uh, as a religious spiritual voice, and I'm just you know uh, curious for uh, would love for you to share again uh, you know personally how being in the Pope's presence, having an opportunity to uh, yeah, I think in, in a meaningful way more than a handshake uh, interact with him. So I'm just you know wondering you know what, if you could just share what that experience is like. Uh, well, sure. <laughs> Shucks. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean um, um, you've already dropped the name, but I'll drop the name. I've actually met, met the Pope four times. And <laughs> um, uh, some of my friends and uh, some of my Catholic friends say that it's easier for Jews to get to meet the Pope than it is for Catholics. Um, and, um, uh, you know, if... if um, 
I don't know if any of you have ever been in the Vatican, uh, 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 but it is, um, you know, the architecture and the art and the scale, um, uh, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. And, you know, you walk down these lengthy halls and they're the Swiss Guard and their outfits and um, uh, it's all very impressive. And then you, you know, you, you walk into uh, the room where you're gonna have the meeting and eventually, you know, when the Pope walks in and his persona is so different than that setting, you know. Um, uh, he, he uh, you know, the, 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 the simplicity that he has made sort of a, a, um, a main characteristic of his pontificate you know, he doesn't live in the fancy uh, papal apartment. He, he lives in a, a simpler room. He eats with, you know, with, the, with, with, with his aides and with the staff. He occasionally, you know, will just kind of go down and, you know, and, 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 and lead the, you know, the daily mass and so forth. Um, I don't think that, you know, that's not just an act. You know, I mean, that's the impression that you get um, when you listen to him and when, when, when you, you meet with him. Um, uh, I, I think that the, the, the moral leadership that he has shown, you know, I mean, one of the, the um, uh, I mean, I think, you know, when I think of Jewish-Catholic Jewish relations, the iconic picture that comes to mind is Pope John Paul II putting a note into the Western Wall on his visit uh, uh, to Israel. When I think about um, uh, uh, pope francis the iconic image that comes to mind was shortly after uh, he became pope he uh, as uh, uh, he, he was washing the feet of, uh, of of prisoners right men and women catholics non-catholics and you know think about the the um, you know imagine any american president um, doing something that is such a, an act of humility. Kindness, but an act of humility. And so, you know, that's, uh, that, that's what, what comes through uh, uh, to me. And, and, you know, and, and, and in, you know, we don't share the same fundamental religious beliefs, but I, I do find him to be an inspiration in that way. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.